Good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, if we've never met, my name's Jay, part of the team. Welcome. Um, a few weeks ago, we started this series called The Wise Life, and we've been asking the question, how can we partner with God to craft the sort of worthwhile lives that all of us long to live? And uh, when we started the series, I think four weeks ago, one of the first things I mentioned at the start of the series was that Dana is actually one of the wisest people I know. And um, you can go back and listen to that teaching if you want to, but uh, today is obviously a very special day for us. It's a, um, for our staff especially, and I know for many of you who've been a part of our church family for a while, it's an emotional day. Um, I just want to clarify here, aloha does not mean Dana's moving to Hawaii. She's going to take some time off this summer, and then um, she'll still be a part of our church family, and uh, how and where she serves, we'll discover that along the way. But here's one thing I do know uh, that I'm hopeful for. Dana has become for me, over the course of the last several years especially, and my hope is that um, uh, for, for many years to come, she's really been a voice of wisdom for me. And I, again, I mentioned this several weeks ago, but one of the reasons is because um, she embodies to me, in many ways, her life embodies to me Paul's words in Ephesians. I want to read them for you now. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 17, Paul writes this. He says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, and this is the key phrase, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Making the most of every opportunity. Now, here's the thing. It, when we're really honest with ourselves, the truth is we don't typically live this way. We're not typically, I mean, not, not all of us, some of us, but most of us, we struggle to make the most of every opportunity. Most of the time, I think, many of us, if not most of us, rather than asking the question, how do I make the most of this opportunity? How do I do the best thing? How do I do the good thing, the right thing, the most beneficial thing? How do I do the thing that benefits and supports and encourages the greatest amount of people? Rather than asking those questions, in our weariness, in our exhaustion, most of us, most of the time, rather than making the most of every opportunity, we're actually just asking the question, uh, is this okay? Can I get by? Is this acceptable? Is this permissible? Is this legal? Right? Let me, um, let me show you a picture of a young girl. This is a girl named Charlotte May Pierstorff. And this is a picture of her when she was about five years old, taken in the very early 1900s, uh, and specifically in 1914. In the year 1914, in February of 1914, Charlotte was five years old. And her parents, they lived in Idaho, and her parents uh, wanted to send her to her grandparents for a few weeks to, um, you know, uh, spend some time with her grandparents. And so... Rather than making the long trek, about 75 miles, and that was a long trek in the early 1900s, it would take a while. Rather than making that long trek as a family, little Charlotte's parents had a brilliant idea. At the time, the U.S. Postal Service only had one limitation on mail. And the limitation was that the package had to weigh no more than 50 pounds. 
As long as the package weighed less than 50 pounds, you could mail it. Didn't matter what it was. And so Charlotte Peerstore's parents in 1914 took little five-year-old Charlotte to the U.S. Postal Service, the, to the post office in their hometown of Grangeville, Idaho. They bought a 32-cent stamp, slapped it on her back, and literally mailed their five-year-old daughter from Grangeville, Idaho to her grandparents 75 miles away in Lewiston, Idaho. Charlotte Peerstorff is the first and only live human being to be mailed by the U.S. Postal Service. Because shortly after this, the U.S. Postal Service decided, you know, we should make it illegal to mail live humans by the U.S. mail. And so to this day, it is illegal to mail live humans or animals by mail. Except the only exception is bees. Did you know that you could actually mail bees? Which I don't understand. But anyways, that's that. Okay, now this seems, this seems absurd to us, right? This seems absurd. That parents would literally mail their child. But you and I are susceptible to this sort of unwise decision-making uh, here and now, today. We would probably never, well, we legally couldn't mail a live human, but, and we would probably never do something like that even if it was legal, but we do unwise things all the time because the same sort of dynamic that was at play when Charlotte's parents mailed her by the U.S. Postal Office that same dynamic is at play today in much of our life. And that dynamic is the dynamic of it's okay. Charlotte's parents mailed her because it was okay to mail her. Technically speaking, it was okay. It was legal. It was permissible. It was allowed. There were no consequences nor penalties. It was okay. You and I do this all the time. It's okay to just look. It's not harming anyone. It's okay to treat that person that way. They deserve it. It's okay to cut this corner. Everybody else cuts this corner. But here's the problem. It's okay, again, mostly means it's allowed, it's permissible, it's legal. But justifying decisions with the phrase, it's okay, leads to an okay life at best and disaster at worst. And nobody wants a disastrous life. None of us in this room, no one in the theater, no one watching online, none of us want just an okay life, a disastrous life. And all of us want something more than an okay life. We want, again, worthwhile lives. And this entire series has been built on the concept that wisdom is a dynamic gift from God that helps us to build a worthwhile life. So my suggestion to you is that without wisdom and without making choices through the paradigm of wisdom, a worthwhile life is impossible. And wisdom is incompatible with a life that tiptoes the line between discernment and disaster. Let me say that again. Wisdom, true godly wisdom, is incompatible with a life that constantly tiptoes the line between discernment and disaster. And yet most of the time, most of us live life this way. Yes, disaster is just right over the edge, 
but how far can I go? It's okay. It's not illegal. It's allowed. Most of us, most of the time, live this way. It's what Andy Stanley calls unexamined assumptions. In his book, Better Regrets, uh, Fewer Regrets, Better Regrets, that would be a strange title for a book. (laughs) Have better regrets, you know, like go big. Just like really regret. That's not the title of his book. Better decisions, fewer regrets, right? In that book, he presents a series of what he calls unexamined assumptions. When I first read them, man, they were like a punch in the gut. Let me share them with you. He says that these are the unexamined assumptions with which so many of us live our lives and make our decisions. Things like, um, if it's not wrong, it's all right. If it's not illegal, it's permissible. If it's not immoral, it's acceptable. If it's not over the line, then it's fine. Just take a moment and linger on these statements for a while. Be really honest with yourself. What areas of your life do these statements, these ideas apply to? They apply somewhere, don't they? We do this sort of thing all the time. I justify an okay life and okay decisions with these sorts of thoughts all the time. But if you unpack these statements further, essentially, we're actually asking these sorts of questions. How low can I go? How close can I get to bad without being bad? How close can I get to wrong without actually doing something wrong? How close can I get to sin without actually sinning? And you trek down that path long enough and before long you find yourself asking far more destructive questions like, how far over the line can I go without experiencing consequences? How unethical can I be without creating unmanageable outcomes? Think about your work. Think about your marriage. Think about your friendships, your relationships, and your social circles. In which ways are you and I applying these sorts of unexamined assumptions? Because here's the guarantee. If and when we see life through the lens of it's okay, Your life will just be okay at best. There's a good chance, eventually, it'll lead you to disaster. Again, Stanley puts it this way. He says that an option can be both not wrong and unwise at the same time. So why do we do this? Why do we constantly map it's okay sort of ideology to the most important decisions of our lives? Why do we do this? Neuroscientists have actually um, mapped the human brain when people make bad decisions or unwise decisions. And what they have found is that there are very consistent brain patterns neurologically in your brain when you make an unwise decision. When something inside of you tells you this is probably not best, but you make the decision anyways, very similar things happen neurologically. Long story short, um, Robert uh, Robert Pearl, who's a physician, Stanford professor, who's the former CEO of Kaiser, um, he puts it this way. This is kind of a summary of the research. Under the right circumstances, a subconscious neurobiological sequence in our brains causes us to perceive reality in ways that contradict objective reality. 
they distort what we see and what we hear. In other words, when there is an unwise decision before you, nobody chooses the unwise thing to do because the unwise thing to do is unattractive. Those are easy decisions not to make, right? The only reason you and I choose the okay path is because there is typically something about the, well, it's okay sort of decision before you that is really attractive. And uh, specifically, what they say is that this sort of decision-making, choosing the it's okay sort of decision, justifying with the phrase, well, it's not illegal, it's not, it's permissible, right? It's okay. The reason that happens neurologically is because of two key components. This is science, right? This is like secular neuroscience. Those two key components are one, high anxiety, and two, major potential gratification. Again, late at night, this is confession time. My wife is here, she can vouch for this, and this is quite embarrassing. One of my vices is late night snacking. I have a very hard time, and Jenny is like the Holy Spirit whispering to me in the dark almost every night when she hears me rustling about in bed and it's like 10 p.m. Sometimes she'll just whisper like, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Like seriously, like she'll hear me moving around. It's like, it's just three words, don't do it. And it sounds like, to, it sounds like the Spirit of God telling me like, Jay, you're a middle-aged man. Your body cannot handle this, you know? And I would say, this is so embarrassing, you guys. I would say probably like 25% of the time I listen to the voice of the Lord speaking through my life. And 75% of the time I'm like, I'm going to do it. And I just, <laughs> it's like a bag of chips or whatever. It's like so bad, so bad. Okay, why, why? Um, Sometimes it's because of high anxiety. Seriously, sometimes like I am so wired on whatever problem I'm trying to solve that I like, I, I, I like comfort myself through eating. You know, some of you can relate to that. And most of the time it's because of immediate gratification. In my mind, I know that eating a bag of chips at 10.30 at night is going to be detrimental to my health. Nobody needs to convince me of that. I know that that's true. But the desire for immediate major gratification, the delicious taste of potato chips in my mouth late at night, right, overwhelms what I know to be really deeply true about health and about you know, being a healthy whole person, right? Some of you can relate to this. So high anxiety and major gratifications, these are the two key reasons why we so often make unwise decisions. Now, in the Silicon Valley, in 2022, if there are two words, two phrases to describe the cultural air we breathe, Those two phrases might be high anxiety and major gratification. So what this means is that you and I live breathing air that makes us constantly susceptible to making decisions through the lens of it's okay. 
This is really important, you guys. You live in a place at a time when everything culturally surrounding you actually hardwires you and pulls you to making unwise decisions because we live in a culture of high anxiety and major gratification. Now, here's the beautiful hope of the scriptures. There was a city in the ancient world, in the first century world of the New Testament, that was also an epicenter of high anxiety and major gratification. I'll show you a picture here. These are the ruins of Apollo's temple. And this was one of dozens of temples that have been excavated, large and small, in the city of Corinth. And you may know that name because there are two books in the Bible, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, that are attributed to the Apostle Paul in which he writes to the early Christians in this city. There are a couple of things about the city of Corinth. Apollo's temple was one of the major temples there, but there were dozens of temples in Corinth. One of the reasons is because Corinth was a very large metropolitan city at the time of the New Testament. The, the general estimates are that the city of Corinth had anywhere between 100,000 to 600,000 people living in it at any given time. Now, that might not sound like a lot today because we live here in San Jose where it's like 900,000 people or whatever. This is a huge city in the first century world, between 100 and 600,000 people. And Corinth was also strategically located between two major harbors. What that meant was that the city of Corinth had control over the major trade routes between Rome and Asia. So that made Corinth um, incredibly wealthy. It made it uh, an incredibly transient place where people came and went. So sailors and travelers and traders were constantly funneling in and out of and through the city of Corinth. Because of this, because literally the known world would converge on this major city, the city was full of major pagan cults to all sorts of gods and goddesses, the gods and goddesses of uh, Egyptian culture and Roman and Greek mythology. And so um, there was this phrase in the first century world, Corinthiazestai, Corinthiazestai. It's one Greek word. And the word means to live like a Corinthian. Corinthiazestai means to live like a Corinthian. And at the time of Paul, Corinthiazestai was a common slang term to describe immoral living. So throughout the known world at the time, in the first century, in the first century world of the New Testament, Corinth was known as a city of immorality of major indulgence, reckless indulgence, of opportunities to um, achieve extreme, major, immediate gratification. And it was a high anxiety city. It was bustling and moving and business and commerce and money-making and trade. And so Corinth is a city of high anxiety and major gratification and, um, you know, the best way to think about it, think about it like uh, it would be like the saying in the first century w world would have been something like, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. 
Okay, so that gives you a picture, right? That's Corinth. And Paul writes to this city teeming with high anxiety and major gratification. And he writes to the early Christians trying to paint a picture for them of how to live a wise life in the midst of high anxiety, major gratification, which is really beautiful because this maps right onto our lives here in the Silicon Valley today. So first, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Just let those words linger and marinate in you for a little bit. Think about these words from Paul in juxtaposition to those unexamined assumptions we read off earlier. If it's not illegal, it's okay. If it's not over the line, it's fine. This is literally the opposite of those sorts of assumptions. Paul says, yeah, you have the right to do whatever you want, but not everything is beneficial. You think you have the right to do anything, but do not be mastered by anything. Wisdom doesn't ask the question, is this permissible or is this legal? Wisdom asks the question, is this beneficial? It is perfectly legal for me to eat potato chips at 10.30 p.m. The police are not gonna knock down my door, say like, hey, here's a citation. How dare you? Look at your gut. You know, like that's not gonna happen. It's totally permissible. But is it beneficial? I mean, let's just get a little bit more serious. It is permissible for you to look at that thing that you're looking at. It's not illegal. It is permissible for you to have the thoughts that you have about that person that you just feel such animosity toward in the workplace, the cubicle right next, right next door. It's actually legal for you to gossip about that friend with your other friends. It's, it's okay. But is it beneficial? Not just to them, but to you. I mean, what is it doing to you? What is that sort of decision-making? What is it not just doing, but what is it undoing in you? Wisdom, again, does not ask, is this permissible, is it legal? Wisdom asks, is this beneficial? And wisdom protects us from being mastered by anything or anyone other than God himself. You know, often we use the it's okay justification to perpetuate destructive things that have a hold over us, right? I don't need to get into detail here. Just think about the stuff that you are either addicted to or have been addicted to and ask yourself the question, did you justify the addiction with the justifying statement, well, it's okay. It's not hurting anyone. It's not harming anyone. But what did it do to you? You ended up being mastered by something or someone that wasn't God. And the Christian ethic is that no one and no thing will ever master us but God himself. 
So again, wisdom does not ask, is it okay, is it permissible, is it legal? It asks, is this beneficial? And it protects us from being mastered by anything or anyone that is not God. Second, wisdom also reflects on how our decisions affect others. Again, Dana is like so wonderfully gifted at this. There have been countless times here on staff where I will suggest a particular thing or sometimes I'll make a particular decision and then, you know, similar to Jenny whispering to me, don't do it. Sometimes in the office, Dana will ask, she'll say something to me like, well, what about this person or that person? It'll give me pause because I'll realize that so often I make decisions with the tunnel vision of just simply how it affects me. And I need to expand my view. How do my decisions affect those around me? Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against God. Let me give you a little bit of context because this is kind of a strange passage, right? At the time, in the city of Corinth, there was actually a lot of confusion amongst the Christians about whether or not it was okay to eat specific meat. And that specific meat was meat that was originally sacrificed at pagan altars in all of these various pagan idolatrous temples. So in the ancient world, it was common practice to sacrifice meat like animals, to slaughter them. You know this if you've read any of the Bible, right? It was common practice, not just in, um, in Jewish tradition, but in all pagan traditions, uh, to sacrifice animals to the gods. And there was confusion at the time because culturally what would happen is these animals would get sacrificed at the altar of idolatrous gods in pagan temples. And then you just had like a dead carcass on your hands, right? So instead of wasting the animal, the meat of the animal would typically either be cooked and served in the temple courts or it would be, um, it would be like chopped up and the meat would be sold at market and then people would purchase that meat and buy, you know, eat it at home or at dinner parties or whatever. And amongst Christians, there was debate. Should followers of Jesus eat the meat that was originally sacrificed in pagan temples? Now, here's what's really interesting. This is actually a pretty benign problem. If you read further, what you discover about Paul is that he doesn't think it's a very big deal. For him, it's like that was just an animal that was slaughtered and killed and it was offered to a false god, but we know there's only one true god, so really, meat is meat. If you wanna, you know, cook it and eat it, great, but he doesn't stop there. He says, that's not enough. He essentially says, listen, this is a real struggle in the conscience of other people Like for some of you, it's not a big deal, similar to the way it's not really a big deal to me. But if it is a big deal to others and you are just careless about your decision, essentially, if you say, well, I'm a Christian and it doesn't bother me, 
that this meat was sacrificed at the altar of pagan gods. I'm just, it's just meat. I'm going to eat it anyways. Sure, maybe that's okay. But if that becomes a stumbling block to other believers who struggle with that issue, then he says, I mean, his words are really strong. He says, with your knowledge, you are destroying these other brothers and sisters. There's a sort of aftershock effect of our decisions. So essentially, Paul is making this point. Wisdom doesn't just ask, is this allowed? Is this legal? Is this permissible? Wisdom also asks, does this in any way cause anyone else to stumble? Does it cause them to toil and struggle needlessly in faith? Does it cause unnecessary trouble in their walk with Jesus? I mean, this maps onto our lives in so many ways, in so many ways. Yes, maybe your conscience is clear based on whatever particular decisions you are making in your life, but the path of wisdom, of godly wisdom, demands that you ask not only how am I doing with this decision, but how does this decision affect those around me? And then it begs the question, are you willing if it negatively affects those around you, are you willing to sacrifice the decision for their good, for the good of the other? And finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. This might be the most important reflection that wisdom offers us. Does this decision bring God glory or does it deflect glory from God? This is a dramatically different question than is this legal? Is this allowed? Is it permissible? It's a different question than even does my conscience allow it? Imagine doing whatever it is you're about to do. Imagine making the decision that you're about to make. Imagine thinking the thought you're about to think with God literally before you. Is this choice or decision or behavior something you can hold before God with no reservation, no guilt, no shame? This is the ultimate question that wisdom asks. The wise life asks this question all the time in all circumstances. Can I do this before God with no reservation, no guilt, no shame? It asks this question in the moments that no one else sees, in the situations that are hidden from view, in the circumstances where no one will find out and consequences are unlikely. In all of those circumstances and more, wisdom asks the question, does this bring glory to God? So again, in summary, the three key questions to live a wise life, in summarizing the question, what's the wise thing to do? Is this good for me? Not is this okay, but is this truly good for me? Does this cause anyone to stumble? And is this choice, decision, or behavior something I can hold before God with no reservation, no guilt, no, sh no shame?
I want you to take a minute right now in this room. Let's just get a little uncomfortable. I want you to think about a decision-making habit that exists in your life. Or if you don't have one, I want you to think about a situation or a circumstance where there is a decision before you and maybe you have been pondering an it's okay decision. Just think about that. Whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, whatever the habit, Now, as you think about that, as that is at the forefront of your thinking, I want you to read these questions again, just internally. Whatever decision or potential decision you might make, or whatever habitual decision you are justifying, think about that right now, and then I want you right now in this moment silently to ask yourself these questions. Is this good for me? Not just okay. Is this really good for me? Does this cause anyone else to stumble? Does this hurt or harm or cause unnecessary struggle to anybody else? And is this choice or decision or behavior something I can hold before God with no reservation, no guilt, no shame? Think about those things for a moment. As you think... Um, Chris and the team are going to come back up and we're going to sing and respond together here in a moment. Now, not for all of us in the room, but my guess is that for some of us, maybe many of us in the room, these questions have given you a new perspective on a particular situation or circumstance you're dealing with. Maybe these questions have given you a new perspective on a habitual pattern of decision-making that exists in your life. And if that is you, again, just in your heart and mind, as we sing this next song, I want to invite you to surrender that decision or circumstance or situation or that pattern of decision-making. I want you to try your best to surrender it to God and ask him to help you break free from that pattern or to make the wise choice in that particular circumstance. And the only way for us to do that is that we have to come to believe that God's vision for our lives is greater than our own. You know, my two kids were seven and almost four. They love the water. And I remember my son, Simon, who's the youngest, right? He's got an older sister. From his earliest age, every time we would go to the pool, he would see his sister slap on her floaties and rush into the water. And because he's a little kid, a little toddler, he has no idea the dangers that lie before him. He doesn't understand, he doesn't conceptualize that he doesn't actually quite know how to swim. So if I'm not careful as his dad, that dude will just run and leap into the deep end. So what do I do every time I'm near a pool with my son? What do I do? My eyes are on him, right? The moment I see him without his floaties creeping toward the deep end, what do I do? I rush over and pick him up, right? Why do I do that? 
Why do I rush over and pick him up? He's not in the water. He's not even wet. He's not drowning. He's perfectly fine. Why do I do it? I do it because what I know is that one small step in the wrong direction could result in tragedy. I do it because there is virtually no margin for error. Do you believe that God sees your life that way? That though time and time again, you justify tiptoeing the line of disaster by saying, well, it's okay, it's okay. Do you believe that God is a loving father who sees disaster and rushes to your aid to grab hold of you and embrace you and keep you safe before disaster befalls you. If you do, then the most logical thing to do for us is to ask God to be our vision, to ask God to help us see life the way he sees it. That's wisdom. Wisdom is seeing our lives the way God sees. Wisdom is seeing every decision, every circumstance, every choice, every situation before us with the eyes of God, trusting that his vision for life is greater than our own. Wisdom is asking God to be our vision. Instead of living the okay life, asking God to help us see all of life the way he sees so that we might live not the okay life, but a worthwhile life, a life of meaning and joy and hope and peace. And we experience that life as we invite God, our loving father, to be our vision. So let's all stand and sing